The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Sometimes in mystical literature, there are correspondences where you can make associations between different, different texts. And, um, and I wanted to point out something that's just kind of fun. We're going to go from the first vision uh, of the Iron Mountain to the second vision. I'm going to read that in just a second. Uh, but the, in the first vision, what she emphasizes in that vision is fear of the Lord. Now, the reason why that's important, if we studied uh, the latter of humility that we, you find in the rule of St. Benedict, the first rung of that ladder is fear of the Lord. And Bernard, remember Bernard, he, um, he talked about uh, this, this same first step, only he, he looked at the same first step in terms of uh, repenting of sin. And then after repenting of sin, loving the truth, and then after loving the truth, loving your neighbor. And, and so these three rungs are kind of like the, the ladder of humility for St. Bernard. So he corresponds fear of the Lord with, um, with repentance of, from sin. And why is that interesting? Well, in the, in the very first vision of St. Hildegard, she also puts the emphasis on before this Iron Mountain, the proper relationship we should have is fear of the Lord. In other words... In making, in making the Iron Mountain the standard of our lives and making the, trini- the love of the Holy Trinity the standard of our lives, we should be repenting about the way we live. God is our standard. Uh, we're not His. And that means we, we need to submit our, ourselves to His love and judge things in light of His love. The, uh, the next little correspondence comes uh, in, in this passage that I'm just about to read. Some of you were noting to me that um, it was just a little bit stuffy in the room during this presentation. <laughs> I had forgotten to turn on the air conditioning, and I apologize for that. The air is now on. Uh, however, with all the heat and the smell that you were experiencing, uh, we're just about to talk about hell. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I was just getting you, you ready. Teachers, teachers use every trick in the book, and I wanted you to have a physical anticipation for this next lecture. Some of you said because of the heat you were falling asleep, but that was not because of the heat. It is because of my gift in the body of Christ. My gift in the body of Christ is I help people rest in the spirit. <laughs> You can ask my students. I mean, I can be lecturing along and all of a sudden I hear thud and that head is right on that desk. And, and, uh, uh, and I'm glad I have this. You know, I've heard of other, uh, other people with different kinds of gifts, but mine happens during my lectures. So if you start dozing off, just remember this is what I tell my seminarians. God is so good, he pours out his blessings on his beloved while they slumber. So, you, so if you fall asleep, don't worry about it. However, the person next, next to you is snoring so loud you're having trouble paying attention or sleeping yourself, just give them a little nudge. Okay. The, um, the next vision that I wanted to talk to you is, is a vision about the creation and fall and the correspondence with, um, 
with St. Bernard's uh, text is St. Bernard, after he talked about ascending the, uh, the ladder of humility, the steps of humility, he goes on to talk about descending the steps of pride. And at the very beginning of his descending into the, the depths of pride, he, um, he begins to talk about Lucifer, our adversary. So I want to say a little bit, uh, uh, just a little bit tonight about, um, uh, about this reality and we'll explore why this is so important. A lot of people don't speak about hell or Lucifer anymore. It, uh, they think it's uh, either too mean or, or too fantastic. But if you want to live a life of prayer, these are realities that you kind of have to face and deal with. You kind of need to know that prayer is a battle, a battle between the truth and the lie and how we're going to live. And the battle is fierce because there's a liar who wants to pull us down. If we submit ourselves to the liar, we can't know the happiness, the freedom that we, we are meant to be ours by the truth. We need the truth to stand on. If we stand on anything else other than the truth, we're swept away. And, um, and so this is the vision that kind of goes, goes with this creation and fall. To understand the battle of prayer, we need to see creation and fall. Then I saw, this is a really weird one actually. <laughs> then I saw, as it were, a great multitude of very bright living lamps which received fiery brilliance and acquired an unclouded splendor. And behold, a pit of great breadth and depth appeared with a mouth like the mouth of a well, emitting fiery smoke with great stench, from which a loathsome cloud spread out and touched a deceitful, vein-shaped form. And in a region of brightness, it blew upon a white cloud that had come forth from a beautiful human form and contained within itself many, many stars. And in so doing, cast out both the white cloud and the human form from that region. And when this was done, a luminous splendor surrounded that region and all the elements of the world, which before had existed in great calm, were turned to the greatest agitation and displayed horrible terrors. So in the first image, of the Iron Mountain, we got the image of something that's strong, powerful, and does not change. What is that? God's love. In this image, we get an image of hell, an image which is filled with agitation and, ch and uh, changing things, turmoil, contention. And um, uh, this would be, I, I kind of talked about the truth, and I I opposed it in the last lecture to myth. I even used uh, Darwin's theological conc uh, conclusions as, as a, a kind of myth. In fact, I, I got a great quote. At the end of this, I want to read this quote. Um, uh, uh, it was a letter his brother wrote to him that kind of illustrates exactly what I, I was trying to say. But the, uh, the contrast that I set up in that lecture, we now see Heldegard's already was seeing the same contrast. She saw the Iron Mountain, but she also saw the Dark Pit. And the Dark Pit that 
that um, uh, out of which came uh, um, er darkness and evil and stench. What is this dark pit? She goes on in her commentary to say that this pit, this is what sprung out of the heart of Lucifer. It sprung out of the heart of Lucifer. Um, he wasn't content himself with rejecting God. He wanted to implicate everyone else in his rejection of God. What was he rejecting when he rejected God? He, re he was rejecting everything that was good, beautiful, and true about what is. And by rejecting that, by saying no to it, he, um, uh, by, by rebelling against God, he was actually removing himself from everything that is good, beautiful, and true. So what does that leave him with? That leaves him with lie. And that leaves him with ugliness and stench. And that leaves him with evil. And um, evil has its own kind of communion. St. Augustine reflects on this in his confessions. He reflects on the fact that he, um, he stole some pears when he was a young man. Now that whole conversation he has about the pears he stole, it's highly symbolic. But he asks himself the question, just why did I go and steal those pears? Did you ever do anything stupid when you were little? And have you ever sat back, scratched your head, and asked yourself the question, why did I do that? And he goes through all kinds of theories trying to figure out why he did that. Well, he was concerned about his friends, and he, wanted to, he didn't want to miss out on anything with his friends. They had a kind of communion of evil uh, where they enjoyed doing evil for evil's sake because it was fun to, do, to steal the pears. They didn't even eat the pears. They stole the pears and they threw them away. You know, and, and he, why did I do that? And then, but, but then he goes deeper in this communion of evil. Why is there a communion of evil? Why do people enjoy doing bad things together? What's going on there? And he says, he says about this, as I tried to find the cause of that, as I tried to look into it, he said it was like trying to see darkness or listen to silence. In other words, what causes... What causes evil is the absence of something that ought to be there. You can't see darkness. You can't hear silence. There's, you can hear a noise and you can see something that reflects in the light or you can see light. But you can't see the absence of something. And what he's getting at with that reflection is evil is the absence of something good in us. When Hildegard of Bingen talks about this great pit that has a mouth opened up like a, a will, uh, like a water will, not the fish, uh, 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 she, he, excuse me, she is describing what Augustine described. That it's, it's a great emptiness. And out of this emptiness, it's not like, uh, emptiness uh, that, that's kind of neutral and when you don't have love well that's okay uh, maybe I have just enough love to get saved and so I'll, I'll be just loving enough you know when there's an absence of love all kinds of evil comes out of it that's her point it, um, evil has a, a kind of 
um, den denimism that wants to implicate others in it, that wants to pull everybody down. And this is, she goes on from this to explain what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. And for her, the difference between angels and, and Adam and Eve is that angels had a choice. They could either be good uh, and respond to God and become good angels, or if they chose to reject God from the very beginning, they, because they've never known anything good at all, because they never chose what was good, they're for all eternity evil. You know, and so evil uh, uh, spirits like Lucifer, um, uh, the great deceiver, he's never known goodness. He's only known evil. Isn't that interesting? Adam and Eve are in a different place because when the serpent finds them, they had been obedient before they were disobedient. They weren't eating of the tree at first. And this should give us great hope. What this means is there's something fundamentally good about humanity, about my humanity and your humanity. We're not fundamentally rebellious. That was not the experience of our first parents. What was the experience of the, our first parents? The experience of our first parents was that they genuinely loved one another. Adam saw Eve and he said, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. When he saw Eve, he realized the truth about himself and he realized he needed to live in a communion of love with her. He needed to be a person in communion, as we were saying before. In other words, Adam and Eve's original experience, and that original experience is something we carry inside us, is that we, they loved one another. And don't you experience when there's an absence of love in your life, when things aren't going the way you had hoped they might go in um, a relationship with a child or a friend or a spouse, there's disappointment. Don't you, you in the face of that disappointment, don't you feel that movement, movement in your heart? This is not the way it ought to be. This, this is wrong. Don't you feel that movement? you would not know that that was wrong, that that ought not be, if somewhere deep in your nature you, there wasn't a, a primordial experience of something better. You're, you're making a judgment about that situ situation based on something that Adam and Eve, our first parents, gave us. So yes, they gave us original sin, but before their original sin, according to St. Hildegard, they, they also gave us original obedience. They were obedient before they were deceived. And she says, this is the whole reason why men and women can be saved and angels can't. The bad angels never knew anything good. And it, because they never knew anything good, there's nothing good there to save. But men and women deep in their hearts, no matter how bad they are, there's something fundamentally good in there, something so good and so beautiful, Jesus died for it. That's the first thing. Second thing that's interesting about her account of uh, the creation and the, and the fall was after Adam and Eve um, uh, uh, were made, she'll go on to talk about the relationship that Adam and Eve uh, enjoyed and how that relationship before the fall, how that relationship is the standard for us now in our marriages. And I, I draw attention to this 
um, uh, today because uh, our institution of marriage is totally attacked. Uh, the hubris of a, uh, of a government that thinks it has the power to, de to define what marriage is is, um, is outstanding. It's the first time this has happened in human history. But uh, governments believe they can tell us what marriage is and what it isn't and what the parameters of it are going to be. The dehumanizing effects of that we are going to see for many years to come. How do we protect, protect ourselves from that? How do, we, how do we live so that those we love might thrive? St. Hildegard, believe it or not, was facing the very same thing in her time. Surely the governments weren't trying to change the definition of marriage. But what was going on in her time was widespread fornication. Incredibly widespread. Priests weren't being faithful to their vows. Um, men and women weren't being faithful to their vows to one another as hus husband and wife. Uh, fornication was, was kind of accepted in the culture uh, on a widespread scale, but not only fornication, adultery. And Hildegard, who views herself as a prophet, comes against all this and says, this is totally irrational. When you live like this, when you live, uh, uh, when you live sinning against what marriage is supposed to be, you are entering with Satan into hell. You are dragging, you're implicating someone else just like Satan Im implicated Adam and Eve into his evil. You're implicating your spouse and all the people in your life into great evil. You're pulling them all down into the stench. And you're made for something better. That's her point. And I'll get to the, 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 how you get out of the pit in just a minute. But to, to try to kind of ferret this out a little bit, Adam and Eve were made in such wise that when they came together, their love was always supposed to be fruitful. For St. Hildegard, love, the love that you see at the Holy Trinity, all of creation comes from that iron mountain. When man and woman love each other, they're meant to be fruitful. The only reason why they're not fruitful, according to St. Hildegard, is because of sin in the world and God's just punishment. And sometimes he prevents, he doesn't allow great goods because he's doing something even better. And other times, he doesn't allow great goods because, um, because he's just in his punishments. And sometimes, he allows great goods like babies into illegitimate relationships because he's working in a mysterious way to bring everyone to salvation. This is her kind of vision. You know? And so she's not saying that the personal sin of the couple has caused this couple not to be fertile. Uh, she's saying that the sins of society as a whole are the cause of in infertility and, 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 uh, and problems. And, and it's interesting when she goes to explain it, rather than talk about physical problems, she talks about moral problems. In other words, if you're in a culture where fornication's okay, you can't raise your children well. They're going to have some tough time. And isn't that what we've, we've faced today? 
We face a culture right now where fornication is considered a good thing. And, you know, it's okay if the kids experiment around a little bit. This is part of the growing thing. And, uh, and we hear about this in terms of, of um, uh, not only uh, uh, kind of dating practices that go on, but, e- but even, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, things like masturbation and so forth are actually promoted in our public schools as uh, safe uh, self-exploration and this kind of thing. It's, it's a very, very depraved culture that we're in. When you have a depraved culture like this, St. Hildegard is saying, we're pulling everybody down into hell because we're implicating everybody into relationships that are not fruitful. We're implicating everyone into relationships that are not fruitful. The Iron Mountain is a fire of love where there's pure fruitfulness. The pit uh, uh, that comes out of Satan's heart is the opposite of that. There's nothing fruitful about it whatsoever. How do we save people from the, from the pit? How do we save people from an unfruitful love? Oh, that would be point three, but before I get to point three, uh, she says, she, she talks about the struggles of couples to be faithful to each other. And, and she, she's, she, uh, in that struggle to be faithful to each other, she says, basically, if the church rules in the, your struggles with each other as a couple that you should no longer be together, then you, know, you, you should obey the, the teachings of the church. But if, uh, if and, and so sometimes um, she's thinking of abusive uh, situations, unfaithful situations, and that sometimes happens. You submit this to the church, ask the church, the church will help you make a good decision about that. But then you don't go, you're not separated from one another so you can get married again. You're separated one, from one another to save you from the abusive situation. You know, that is a big problem because we have so many abusive relationships in our, in our culture today. You know, uh, so so how in um, what sometimes people want, they want to escape an abusive situation, and they don't realize that um, just because they escape a, uh, an abusive situation doesn't mean they have the right to remarry again. What God has joined together, nobody can separate. And and when it's one thing to be removed from an abusive situation but still be faithful to that love. You just can't be there because it's abusive. It's another thing to say, I'm going to pretend that never happened in my life and to go on to something new, something different. That happens a, a lot. We throw each other away. She, she's against that. But she says there, there's one exception. This is kind of interesting. She says that, that sometimes a married couple can be so caught up in the love of the Lord that they choose they choose to forego the goods of marriage so that they can engage in the life of prayer more deeply. And I think you actually find St. Paul saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If I've got my... You, he, he talks about married couples should stay together except when they go to pray uh, uh, for a time. And Hildegard's kind of developing this idea a little bit. In other words... Our devotion to Christ, if God wants, if Christ wants you together, you should stay together. But if he calls you to a deeper life of prayer, 
then go on retreat and and you know explore that life of prayer and um, and today I think sometimes uh, in our marriages and our family situations we don't encourage each other to go on retreat and to go pray and to go and best time with the Lord uh, and and when we do that when we say no to that devotion to Christ it diminishes our communion with each other. St. Hildegard's vision of marriage, I, I said that it, it involved fruitfulness because the Holy Trinity is fruitful. Uh, there's another element to her vision of marriage that Christ saves. And that is marriage for St. Hildegard is not something that is the result of human effort. Marriage is the result of divine power. How often in our marriages today, in our family life today, do we look at our family life as something that we strain together for by human effort? If I can just get the right self-help book, I'll finally fix my, myself up or my spouse up and we'll have a happy marriage. You know, if marriage was our own effort, then the way we're living marriage today would make a lot more sense. And, and realize, you know, all kinds of broken situations that you got to walk away from would make sense to walk away from because there are some situations that get broken and we can't humanly fix. Heldegard of being in though, she has another vision of marriage. Marriage is about the power of God at work in the human heart. Filling the human heart. Making communion with one another possible. And it's on this element that she talk, begins to talk about our redemption. And in her vision, the human person is not capable of redeeming himself or herself. The human person is not capable by himself or herself of saving their own marriage. Only God can do that. Because God established that bond. And only God can save us. Because only God knows what is good deep inside us. Only he knows to speak, how to speak to that goodness and bring it to birth and new life again. And it's for that reason that God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus comes into our broken situations, our broken marriages, our broken families, our failures of personal integrity. He comes into that to bring us salvation, to restore our integrity by giving us a sensitivity to the truth. Now it's curious, in this vision and her uh, explanation of this vision, she gave us hell, marriage, and um, hell and marriage, <laughs> and salvation. Hell, marriage, and salvation in a vision. That's, that's kind of, uh, it's an interesting combination, isn't it? Now, what's so interesting to me about this is she doesn't talk about salvation, has a, and I started with this this evening, she doesn't talk about salvation as an individualistic, private thing. I need to work out my salvation and I do so in the quiet of my own private life so that you know I don't offend anybody else. They can live their way and I work out my salvation my way. Or she doesn't talk about a devotion to Christ that's me and Jesus. 
You know, Jesus, you're my co-pilot. You take over. You, you get me to... She talks about her vision of salvation is we and Jesus. And Jesus not only wants to save the soul, but he wants to save the family and the marriage. He wants to save our communion with one another. And she believes only he can. That's our word of hope. Um, the, uh, the Holy Father, going back to uh, World Youth Day, I, I, for me, that's such a, a, a powerful touch point in my life. I remember uh, going into the Mile High Stadium and it was the Stations of the Cross. I didn't really like those Stations of the Cross. They just, uh, it was a little bit too politically correct for me and I just didn't resonate. Some people liked it, I didn't. Uh, but what was really neat wasn't the Stations of the Cross themselves. What was really neat for me while I was going into the stadium and while I came out of the stadium was all the people I met. Some people I met were students with me in Rome. And I knew I would never see them again in this life. And so as we were coming out of the stadium, you know, uh, 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 Father Baker came by. He's a uh, bishop out in uh, Birmingham. I, I, said, I said, Father, how are you? He goes, Anthony, what are you doing here? Well, it's World Youth Day. And we shook hands and, and he goes, well, I'll see you in heaven. And we walked, we walked our separate ways. And there was a joy in that greeting. And there was a communion of love in that greeting that we didn't really want to end but in this life you our hellos become goodbyes in heaven our hellos there's no goodbyes why because in this life the communion we have with one another is still being brought to perfection it's imperfect it's subject to time and space but in in heaven in heaven that love never changes and in heaven, the perfection of that love and the perfection of that communion and the friendship, the fruitful friendship we have has no end. It's forever and ever and ever. What Hildegard is uh, being in a saying is that love that is forever and ever and ever, what John Paul II called life to the full, the abundant life. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. That fullness of life is available to us now if we cry, cry out to Jesus in faith and beg him to have mercy on us. Have mercy on us in the lack of love that we experience from day to day. Have mercy on us because in our hearts too there is a pit, a, a deep well out of which spews all kinds of stench and darkness and filth. And it hurts everybody around us. And she says, that doesn't have to be the case. If you call out to Jesus and beg for his mercy, he will hear your prayer. This is why he came into the world. So the point is, Jesus then isn't our salvation in a kind of a hyped up sensational way, you know, um, uh, I'm going to have an altar call and whoever wants to accept Jesus in, into their heart. You know, the, that can be a very important grace. Actually, not just the Protestants, but the great saints used to do that. I told you about St. Bernard. St. Bernard basically had an altar call and the 25 men who responded to him 
went with him to go form the Abbey of uh, Clairvaux. <laughs> you know, that, that was an altar call. But, um, but it was when they came up, it was they were coming up to choose a life of conversion. Sometimes when we respond to the grace of Christ, we want something. What we're really looking for is kind of um, a feeling, a psychological relief. And we're not really looking to change our lives. We're not really looking to convert because deep down inside, we don't really think we need that salvation. We don't really need to make big changes. We just need a little bit of relief from the pain that's there at the moment. And we can even do this with the sacrament of confession or communion. And if we do that, it's kind of an abuse of the sacraments. When we go, the proper, what's the proper disposition to go to confession or communion? The proper disposition is, I, Anthony, am a sinner. And without Jesus, I am deservant of hellfire. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am unworthy to have you in my heart, but without you I'm lost. Fill my heart. Do not abandon me in my misery. Let me know the mercy of the Father. When we go to communion like that, when we go to confession like that, Jesus doesn't fail to hear that prayer. And he gives us the grace to change. So that hopeless situations, hopeless situations in our families, in our marriages, or at work, or in our community, Hopeless situations receive through us, through our conversion, our repentance, they receive a word of hope, a chance, a little sign of heaven. Anyway, this is the, we only got to do two visions of, of St. Hildegard. I was hoping to do a three, but, but I talked too much. Uh, we have about 15 minutes, and what I would like to do right now, just because... The, uh, we covered a lot of different ground and so forth, is I, I'd like to just take a few minutes and open it up to you for, for questions or comments or insights that, that you might have. Yes, Alex? Have you talked about the, the child in the first uh, vision? Yes. I think, yeah, I, I think it is uh, Jesus. She also talks about it being innocence, and she relates the child to fear of the Lord. And so somehow... Jesus, um, uh, it's an image of Jesus sent by the Father, vulnerable to holy humanity. Uh, But it's also, that child is also what holy humanity is meant to become. It's an exemplar. And so you find both movements in her writing. Uh, Something that this divine child sent into humanity, and yet humanity being formed into its image and likeness. Yes. Um, what was your, what would uh, personal devotion toward discipline? Oh, thank you. It's a wonderful question. So the question was, what was, what was the discipline of Christian life that Saint Hildegard observed? And if you really want to study this more in depth, you would pick up the rule of Saint Benedict. I was tempted, in fact, to begin this series with the rule of St. Benedict, but there wasn't enough weeks. <laughs> but uh, in the rule of St. Benedict, you'll find 
you'll find various elements, including Lexio Divina, but you'll also see that morning prayer and evening prayer, uh, in fact, seven periods of prayer a day. And so these, these prayers that they prayed, these were the Psalms, and the Psalms were divided in special way throughout the day so that your whole day was permeated with prayer. So that the, the first main element in the rule of St. Benedict is aura. Uh, you, you, uh, the, the, the work of the praise of God. And you did that by going into the chapel and chanting the Psalms and also um, uh, uh, going to Mass. Mass was a, a part of monastic life. When her community wasn't at Bingen before, I'm pretty sure they had daily liturgy, even if they didn't go to communion frequently, they had a daily Eucharistic liturgy. When they moved out to Bingen and they didn't have priests as available, I'm not sure if it remained daily or not. I'd have to study that a little bit more. Ora, O-R-A, Ora, which means prayer. So that was the first element of their life was prayer. It's a life completely around prayer. And among the seven hours, there was one hour that was in the middle of the night and you'd keep vigil. You'd wake up after you went to sleep and spend a couple hours of prayer and then go back to bed and wake up in the morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but have you ever woke up in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep? You know, you can choose to be frustrated by that, but you can also go... Oh yeah, now I get to join St. Hildegard and all the, all the monks all over the world and you know pray a rosary or something like that. I usually fall asleep again praying the rosary. So. <laughs> but, but there are other, or you can read the scriptures. In other words, don't let that time be wasted. The middle of the night is a wonderful time for vigil. So, so uh, that was one thing. The other thing that they did was uh, labora, work, labora. So ora et labora. And, uh, and so, and so uh, they, had, they were involved in physical work every day, so, except for Sundays. Physical work uh, involved some kind of work outside in the fields. It involved keeping the monastery clean. It involved repairing the monastery. Those big buildings, there's always something going wrong all the time. And, and uh, that physical labor was part of their service to God, part of their Christian life working together. And then the third part of their Christian life was um, uh, the uh, Lexio Divina or study. And this is what they would do in the privacy of their cell. They might, the, uh, normally uh, uh, Benedictine monasteries had books. Hildegard was writing books. And the reason why she was writing books was for her sisters to have something they could study. And, and um, uh, there was not enough books at the time and, and uh, there wasn't a lot of lit literacy. But you read, you read books in your cell. Sometimes the books were related to your life of prayer. They were spiritual books. Sometimes they were related to the work you had in the community. Like if you were the farmer for the community, you would have a book on farming to, to make sure you did that right. But, so, ore labora but also study, or Lexia Divina, was part of your life. So that, that would be to answer it in general. Here's the neatest thing, though, about the rule of St. Benedict. You go all the way through the rule, and they explain everything, how you're to pray the office, and, and all the different mannerisms that are supposed to go with it. And, and so it's, it's pretty detailed. But at the end of the rule, St. Benedict says this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. 
He says, um, those of you who observe this rule will be observing the minimum of what you need for salvation. <laughs> this is just for beginners. So if you go through, and I mean, and you've read all this stuff and it's all detailed and you're thinking, this is for beginners? You know? <laughs> and then he says, he says after that, for those of you who want to go beyond being beginners and become perfect in your love for Christ, I encourage you to read the scriptures and the fathers of the church who uh, go far beyond what this rule proposes. What's the date of that rule? The rule of St. Benedict. I think it's 5th century, no, 6th century. Okay, early 6th century. And his feast day is tomorrow. tomorrow. I and, oh, yeah. Oh, I, um, yeah. They say Oliver Plunkett's tomorrow. Did, do, you, do you know the date for that, that rule? No, I know. Oh, okay. Did you? No, I want to know what Darwin's brother said. Oh, Darwin's brother. Let me pull this out because this is a pretty good quote. <laughs> you know, um, so it, what I was telling you, what I was trying to illustrate with the, I usually have a biologist come up to me and defend Darwin after I do this. But, uh, my purpose wasn't to smash Darwin. My purpose was to, to explain that his ideas were received not merely because he was making scientific claims, but because he was making theological claims that appealed to the, the circumstances of that time. The 19th century was a century of great struggle, and it appealed to the imagination that all of life was a great struggle. And so this is what his... His brother wrote him. In, uh, he's going to use the word a priori. A priori means before all experience. You don't even need to experience any of this. So the a priori reasoning is so entirely satisfactory to me that if the facts, um, excuse me, if the facts won't fit in, why so much worse for the facts is my feeling. <laughs> So do you, do you see the idea that the myth that he was proposing was more important than the scientific discoveries? <laughs> and, um, and, th and this was the interaction, an informal interaction between him and his brother, but I think it captures something of the time. And, um, and the problem is, going back to the, the Iron Mountain, the problem is when we only live according to things that appeal to our imagination at the time. Today we might say, when we only live to values that are politically correct in our time here and now, those values kind of change this way and that. You know, the values that were, when I was a little kid in the 1960s, aren't the same as the values now. It's not stable for your life. You get pushed this way and that. And so, it's easy to be caught up in the, uh, in the I don't know, the, the age. And when you're caught up in the age and you're sucked and pulled along by it, you don't have anything firm. So by way of conclusion tonight, I'd like to, on this point, refer you to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is a semi-paraphrase. I'm quoting it like a good Catholic. <laughs> but the verse begins, the, those two verses begin, I implore you, 
by the mercies of God, I implore you by the mercies of God, not to live, um, uh, not to live like the pagans with your minds conformed to this age, but rather offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, your spirit, true spiritual worship through the renewal of your mind so that you might know what is God's will, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. When we live according to what's going on in this world, in our culture, in our society right now, and we say, okay, well, you know, I know the Catholics taught this a long time ago, but everybody else is doing it this way. I'm going to kind of go along with it because I want to be able to get along with everybody. I, I don't want to have, you know, get people upset. You, I don't want confrontation. I'll just kind of go along with it. And so you think with everybody else, what you are not able to do when you're thinking like everybody else is that you're not able to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You're not able to love. Because what's going on in the world? It's not love. So if we think like everybody else, we can't, we love like everybody else, which means we don't love. If you want to love the way God loves, if you want to love in a way that's in harmony, rational, right ordered to the iron mountain that St. Hildegard sees, St. Paul says, you can only love like that. You can only make of your whole body everything in your existence and a spiritual offering to God. You can only do that if your mind is renewed. St. Hildegard would say, if your mind sees the iron mountain, when you see this iron mountain, when you see the love of God, when you keep it alive in your heart by going to prayer, then you know in every circumstance what is God's will, what is good, what is pleasing, and what is perfect. The wisdom of St. Hildegard, the wisdom that she has about the mystery of faith, is that we can know these things for our lives right here and right now. And when we do, it makes a huge difference, not only for our lives personally, but for all those we love. When we don't, our lives and the lives of everybody around us become a living hell. So she's giving us a decision between heaven and hell. Faith is a great decision. And those who decide to believe in the love of God step into the fullness of our humanity, a fullness of life, a life God has wanted us to have before the beginning of creation. So um, there you are. That's St. Hildegard. Next week, we get St. Catherine of Siena. She's Italian. So we got the French. We got the Germans. But now we're going to get the fiery Italians. She, her years, I'm sorry, I should have written that down. Her years are roughly that of... Um, of St. Um, Bernard. Let me see. Yeah, yeah, let me. Uh.
Uh, what do you know? I can't find the year. Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have it on the fact sheet uh, passed out. So we, every week I'll, I pass out a sheet for you uh, with, with some interesting things from the last lecture. I'll put her, her dates on there for you. Okay, well, uh, it's time to close with prayer. And uh, last week I surprised Deacon Joseph by doing that. And so this week I'm going to surprise Father Scott uh, Bailey and ask him to, uh, to give us our, uh, a final blessing.